Thank you. All right. Our text for tonight, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 28. Hear the word of God. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with the tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by those who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he was able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives and makes intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. That is the word of God. Thanks be to God. So there's a whole bunch of verses there, a little bit longer of a passage than we usually talk about, so the sermon should only be three or four hours. What time does the sun set? <laughs> Just kidding. But there's a lot in here and there's a lot to unpack, but we're going to really focus on tonight. What is God's goal for us? And, and is it to live a happy life? Is it to be wealthy? Is it to have good kids? Is it to have a nice house? I'm going to tell you as a spoiler at the beginning, it's not any of those things. But what we are going to explore is what his real goal for us is. Because my guess is what we think his goal for us is and what the Bible tells us his goal for us is are going to be different things. And so a little bit of background and history. We kind of cover this each week to recap but we know that this letter was written predominantly to Jews. That's why it's called Hebrews. And we know many of these Jews were deep in their faith and committed to the service of the Lord. But they were unable to come into the presence of God. And so that's why the Levitical priesthood existed. These priests would conduct sacrifices on behalf of the people. They acted as an intermediary between the people. And last week we talked about two subjects. We talked about the Levitical priesthood. So kind of what it was, who the Levites were. And then we talked about the idea of charity. If you remember, we talked about tithing. that The idea that the word tithing meaning one-tenth. The fact that the Levites didn't have any land of their own. The 12 tribes had been scattered into Israel. And they were all provided an inheritance. Except the Levites. They were placed within these lands themselves. 
and their inheritance was a guarantee of being paid 10% from the Jews. And that's where we get this idea of tithing of 10% from. So we, we, we talked about that, but then we also talked about the priesthood of Melchizedek, this, this priest that, I'm sorry, the dog's barking, I think the Amazon guy just left. Um, so we talked about this priesthood of Melchizedek, the fact that Abraham had given 10%, given a tithe to Melchizedek, and then Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Except Melchizedek wasn't of a priestly tribe. He wasn't a Levite. He wasn't part of the class of Jews that was actually priestly. So there's this disconnect. Why would Abraham in the first century have given a tithe, a commandment to somebody that wasn't a Levite? And so we, it, it's, a, it's foreshadowing. It's foreshadowing the fact that Jesus is going to come from this priesthood of Melchizedek. And then if you remember, we talked about the fact that there's no genealogical record in the Bible of Melchizedek. And, and last week's section gave us a little bit of a hint and said there was a, a part of the text that referenced the fact that he has no beginning and no end. Not saying that he was forever, but that he didn't have genealogy inside the Bible itself, which was again foreshadowing Jesus' eternal priesthood. And so why is all that important? Well, the Bible was using specific language that Jews at the time would understand to make a statement about the fact that Jesus is going to be greater than Melchizedek. And so because of that, we get to use some logic. Because here it says that the old priesthood, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people uh, received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? So we use logic, and logic says that if something had to come after it, we can determine that the old priesthood was imperfect. It didn't provide what was needed to arrive at this closeness to God. And so we can then make a determination, just using logic, that it couldn't actually save us. That the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system in the Old Testament couldn't provide us the salvation that we need. However, Jesus' priesthood is perfect. And so because it's perfect, there's going to be different considerations for our life. And we start with this, this idea of perfection in verse 11. He said, he said here, now if perfection had been attainable. Since the Levitical priesthood, or sorry, if the Levitical priesthood had been perfect, then the law would have been perfect, and then we wouldn't have needed a new priest. Yes, sir? That's the Mosaic law? That is the Mosaic law. You're like, like I love this, because you're like, you're like three bullet points ahead of me, and you don't even know it yet. No, it's good. No, it's good. We should, we should practice, because then you can like softball, and I'll just lob it right out. Okay. But that's exactly right. So if, if the Levitical priesthood had been perfect, the law would have been perfect. But because it's not, we know that the law is not. And so we have a new high priest, which means that the law before us is not perfect. But before we talk about the Mosaic law, what is perfection in the context that Hebrews is talking about? If you dictionary.com, you know, if you type in perfection, it says the condition, state, or quality of being free or as free as possible from all flaws or defects. Is that what Hebrews means by perfection? Shake your head no. No. That's very good. The perfection that we're seeking here is actually about this idea of having complete access to God. So the Jews didn't have complete access to God. They had to have an intermediary. They couldn't go into the... We talked a number of weeks ago about going into the inner temple, right into the sanctuary, and that only the high priest could go into the, the Holy of Holies. they tie a rope around him in case he died because nobody else could go in, so they drag his dead body out of there. The Jews needed this intermediary to get into communion with God. So what we're saying here is, by the fact that the priesthood is imperfect, it meant that it, 
you as a believer, as a Jew, cannot have direct access to God without the priesthood. However, if we were to read John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So what Jesus is making a claim in, in John's gospel, and what we're going to see that, that Hebrews is making a claim, is that it's no longer through a priest or an intermediary that we get perfect and complete access to God. We, we no longer need this, this person in between us. We have direct and complete and perfect access to God through Jesus. But when the priests change, the laws also change. And we know this in our life right now. I am not comparing our politicians to priests because they are not <laughs> at all. But we know now when politicians change, laws also change. When the party on the left comes in, a whole bunch of things change. When a party on the right comes in, a whole bunch of things change. It seems that things change slower when the guys on the right get in, but neither here nor there. So, oh, it was <laughs> Zane agrees. But the Levitical priesthood wasn't good enough, so what we can expect is that as a new high priest arrives, then laws are going to change as well. And we know that from Matthew 5.17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus, right up front, is telling us things are going to be different now that I am here. The way the law is approached is different now that I am here. Uh, the, the concept of keeping kosher, dietary laws that, that Orthodox and religious Jews keep today, that came up in Jesus' time in Matthew 15, 11. There's this discussion going back and forth with these disciples. Do we have to keep kosher anymore? Because most of these followers, the early part of the church, were Jews. They were Jews that, that had recognized that the Messiah had arrived. So in 1511, Jesus responds and says, It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of his mouth. This defiles a person. This is probably also a really good reminder for 2021. It's not what you put in your mouth, but what is really destructive is what comes out of your mouth. Or, you know, on the social media sphere, on a keyboard, what you type is an extension of what comes out of your mouth. So what Jesus is saying is the laws of kosher are fulfilled. Stop worrying about what you eat. Worry about what you say. That part of the law, the Mosaic law, is no longer binding because I've come to fulfill the law. A new high priest, things have changed. So verses 13 and 14, For the one who, of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Moses never mentions the tribe of Judah as having any type of priestly responsibility. And because of that connection with Melchizedek before, the, the blessing with Abraham and the tithing and the understanding that Jesus was going to come from this line and be greater than that, what we can infer, again through logic, is that the Mosaic law, the laws of Moses, are no longer binding in the manner that they were to the Jews in the Old Testament. In fact, really what those laws were really there for was to show us how far apart from God we really were. The law was really showing us how you can never access God by just trying to keep the rules as best as possible. That doesn't have any spiritual connection to it. It turns into kind of a treadmill that's going to nowhere. And I know this firsthand because I was Jewish and I tried to live 613 laws. And you can get so wrapped up in the legal system that the spirituality of it just goes out the door. So verses 15 and 16, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, talked about that, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. That's the idea that the Jews have that if you're from the tribe of Levi, 
It's because your father and his 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 father, going all the way back, are from the same tribe. This isn't about family line and bodily descent any longer, but by the power of an indestructible life. Jesus didn't come through bodily descent. He was here in body. This idea of bodily descent is talking about family lineage. It wasn't who his earthly father was. It's about his indestructible life, which is about who his heavenly father is. And so we foreshadowed this fact last week when we talked about the Melchizedek having no reference to the family origin. It set us up for this idea of Jesus's indestructible life. And why? Because he's fully God. He conquered death. His life is actually indestructible. If you have conquered death, there's nothing else to conquer. That is, that is the, the greatest of things to conquer, right? It's, it's actually the most outstanding claim that Christianity makes. Paul even goes on to say that if this, this claim that we make about the resurrection, if it's not actually true, you should have pity on us. If we just believe that this is all pretend. Because all of our faith rests on this one fact. Jesus either did or did not come back from the dead. If he didn't, he was just another nice guy with some nice things to say. But if he did, everything in the world changes. And this is really what the author of Hebrews is driving into. Because the Levitical priesthood was never intended to go on forever. If you read the Old Testament, there was nowhere that says the Jewish priesthood is supposed to go on forever. There's nowhere specifically saying it doesn't go on forever either. So you, you can't really, you, it's like things about baptizing babies. There's nowhere that really says you should and there's nowhere that really says you shouldn't. There's some inferences back and forth, but we have to make, we have to kind of do scripture interpreting scripture and look at the big picture. And so by the fact that we know another priesthood comes and the Old Testament doesn't tell us specifically that the Levitical priesthood is forever, we know that Christ being eternal is meant to go on forever which means the old priesthood is no longer valid. And so if we were to look at verses 17 through 21, and I won't read them again, these are more examples of the Old Testament text that we've seen. One of them was what Brian read today in Psalm 110. The reason these Old Testament texts are quoted is because, again, the Jews would have been familiar with this. They would have been familiar with Psalms. They would have been familiar with the Old Testament stories. So they're being used as proof texts. They're being used as texts in this letter by the author to say, hey, you remember when you studied Psalm 110? Here's the fulfillment of that now. Here's the proof text of how this is happening and who Jesus really is. That he is greater than Melchizedek. And then that's what leads us to this really big statement in verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. It is a definitive statement. If you read it in the Greek, it is a definitive statement. Not one that is up for any argument, but definitive. And the Jews were covenant people. They believed God's covenant. Covenant's a fancy word for promise. Two weeks ago we talked about promises, that our earthly promises are nothing like God's promises. God always keeps his promises. We kind of sometimes-ish try to keep our promises, maybe not always. And so the Jews were covenant people. We, Christians, are covenant people today. This is an extension. Jesus is part of that covenant, part of the new covenant. So they really understood how God made covenants with people. And this statement is saying that he is the guarantor of a better covenant. But what do we get with this better covenant? Well, one of the things we get with this better covenant is eternal salvation. That's what it says in verse 24. It says, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So this covenant that Jesus has made with us goes on forever because he holds his priesthood forever. He holds it eternally. He and only he is the one who can make intercession for us. 
Nobody else can make intercession for God except Jesus. That's why you, each one of you, has direct access to the Lord. So us, are these the depraved sinners that we are, your dad says uh, his murderous, adulterous heart, and I love it, it's great, <laughs> but it's true, like my murderous, adulterous heart, that, that this place in depravity, we have forever salvation, eternal salvation, because his priesthood continues forever. And then in verse 26, it tells us more about that. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. This gives us the criteria on why he can intercede for us, because he's nothing like us. Even though he took human form and he came here, he intercedes because he doesn't represent us at all. And he's exalted above the heavens because he is God. He was fully man. He was fully God. This is part of this crazy divine mystery that is the Trinity as well. And then in verse 27, it goes on and says, but he doesn't even have to offer a sacrifice daily. There's no need for him to offer a sacrifice daily because he himself was the ultimate sacrifice. The Levitical priests had to offer the sacrifices daily, first for themselves because they were sinners, not unstained, and then they would offer it on behalf of the people. But Jesus doesn't have to do that because he was holy and he was perfect. He was complete and he was sinless. That idea of perfection, again, in being total communion with God. A son who has been made perfect forever, forever and never ending. And I think sometimes it's really hard to grasp the concept of never ending. Sophia asked uh, the other day, why do we say forever and ever at the end of the Lord's Prayer? Forever means forever. And it's, it's a translation issue because Greek can put emphasis on the right syllable. Greek can put emphasis on a word that we can't easily put in English. That's why in, a, in an English Bible you'll see truly, truly, I say to you. The Greek doesn't say truly, truly. The Greek word is emphasized in a different way. It's the same here forever and ever. But we don't have that in English. We don't have an easy way to, to emphasize that. So we use the same word twice to tell you this really actually means forever and ever. But it's hard for us because in our sinful world, every single thing dies. Our goat died this week on top of everything else. Billy, Billy died. I know, Billy died. It's really sad. And Bob, like everyone has to go back and say hi to Bob because Bob is like legitimately sad. We're going to have to get a replacement goat. It's been, we've, we've legitimately had a tough week. And, but in our sinful world, everything dies, right? The goat's going to die. All of you are going to die. If we leave all of this alone uncared for, it will eventually crumble and fail and die. So for us, the concept of forever is hard to really grasp because nothing in our, our, our kind of our purview outside of this understanding of who God is actually lasts forever, which is similar with our goals. When I worked for Boeing, we had to do SMART goals. Has anybody here done SMART goals? Yeah, specific and measurable, attainable, relevant, and time-based. <laughs> Brian's about to throw up in his lap a little oh, bit. Yeah, you did. You do your smart goals. Yeah. Ah, oh, it's great. So you have to make smart goals, and then those smart goals are what's going to determine whether you get a raise for the year. And so you know, there's a there's a mid-year performance review at about six months. You you check in and you see if you're actually obtaining your smart goals, and then at the very end of the year, you get to compare and see if you met your goals, and then your whole raise is going to be dependent on those goals. Did you actually grow? Did you actually grow? Highly doubtful. <laughs> but we've talked. Those are what? Proficiency matrixes. Oh, oh proficiency matrixes now. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, a, there's this. Matrices. matrices. 
there's a company that makes demotivational posters, but they look like the motivational posters. It's called despair.com. <laughs> One of them's an eagle, and it's like uh, being on the top. It's like it's lonely at the top, but it's fun to look down at all the people at the bottom. But there's another one that says consulting. If you can't be part of the solution, there's a lot of money to be made in prolonging the problem. Um, so you can come up with new terms for things. They bring, they bring in consultants. Uh, makes me also think of office space. <laughs> the bobs. But I think this is another area where we can attach our human understanding to the idea of goals to God's goals for us. We, we've talked about this with fatherhood. We've talked about this with perfection. We've talked about this with promises that we sometimes will impute upon the Bible how we understand things in this worldly context versus a heavenly context. And, and I think that's really where the secret is because the, God's goal for all of us isn't any of these things that we probably think is. It's actually for us to draw closer to him. It's actually not even about heaven which is a really wonderful like side effect. It's like a party favor. One of the party favors for faith in Jesus is that you get to go to heaven. That's a really, really sweet deal. Hell does not sound like a lot of fun. Somebody asked once, is, it, is hell really exactly like it's described in Matthew? And it's like, well, even if that is an analogy, it looks pretty awful. So if that's the analogy, I don't want to know what the real thing really looks like. So there are these wonderful side effects like heaven, but that's not what God really wants from us. God's goal for us is that we draw close to him. And I think that for many Christians, once they are in saving faith, they actually go to this place of comfort. And they say, well, I'm saved. That's pretty great. I know that I'm going to go to heaven. But our salvation isn't the actual goal. Our salvation is a byproduct of our faith. And, and it is a requirement for our ability to draw closer to God. If we, as sinners, we, how, do, how do sinners approach a perfect God? You can't. That's the reason that the high priest was the only person in the Holy of Holies, because he was supposed to be holier than thou. He was supposed to be a representative of the people, separated from the people. So how do we as broken sinners with our, our adulterous, murderous hearts approach a God? Well, through our faith, we're cleansed of our sin. We're justified before the Lord. Your debt has been paid. But it's not just about your debt being paid. It's about God wanting us to draw nearer to him. And that's why he sent Jesus to die for us. He sent his son, the person he loves. I've been in this place all uh, today and, and most of yesterday, and I really didn't sleep last night, of just being totally heartbroken by this gap that is left in my life with chain and not around. Like nothing. I, have, I know nothing about my 16-year-old. I don't know what she's interested in. I don't know who her friends are. I have no contact with this human being that I helped create. My, my soul hurts. Like my heart hurts. God sent his son to die. He sent his perfect son to die. I'm, I'm sad about my imperfect daughter not being here. God sent his perfect son as a gift out of love for us to die on our behalf, to justify us for our sin so that we can draw closer to him. That's the ultimate goal. And, and there's wonderful, incredible byproducts as we do that. John MacArthur says that drawing near to God is the essence of Christianity. Drawing near to God is the Christian's highest experience and should be his highest purpose. That is the design of God for Christianity. Access to his presence, coming into his presence with nothing in between. So things like lowered anxiety, the ability to deal with suffering, our knowledge of our reward in heaven, they are wonderful secondary results of our faith. But the real, real joy that we get is this ability to draw closer to God. Because what it means is that he's not impersonal. He is totally personal. He knows the hair on everybody's head. Every one of your life was pre-planned in his image 
and thought out. It wasn't an accident. It means none of this is an accident, which also means that the suffering that we're all experiencing isn't an accident either. It means that it has purpose. Life without God means life is purposeless. Cold hard fact. If you don't believe in God, your life has no purpose. There is no morality, and there's no purpose to it. It's just do whatever you feel like and and feed your narcissism and feed your ego because it's all really about you. But if you believe in God, and if you believe in saving faith in Jesus, then it's all about drawing closer to God. And the more that we understand God's love for us, then the more we actually love him and the more we want to draw closer to him. And that's where we find our perfection. It's in completeness. It's in the access to him. It's unobstructed access. You can go to him anytime you want without an intermediary. You can confess your sins to him. You can plead with him. You can be angry with him. And he will listen to you. No other faith in the world tells you that you have direct access at any time to a God that cares about you. He cares about every single thing that happens in your life, whether it's the dog that's sick or trying to figure out which of the jobs that you should take or how things are going in school or how you're going to deal with that idiot captain you have to fly with at Sky West. God cares about every single moment of your life. And that's how you become complete. And you actually can't find it anywhere else. Trust me, I've tried. If you're curious, I'll tell you all the things I tried to put faith in outside of God and none of them worked. So the challenge for all of us this week, the takeaway for all of us this week, is that we need to pray to be closer to God. He wants that for us. God is never far from us. We are the ones that go far from God. When I'm mad about things externally and I just don't want to, it's me, not God. The Westminster Confession of Faith says, and I like this, it's, I'll paraphrase it because I don't have it out, but it's something along, it's like, sometimes God will leave us to our own manifest sin so that we will separate ourselves away from him, so that we will understand our utter dependence and need on him, or need for him, right? He'll allow us to go to our own manifest sin and our own manifest selfishness, so that we'll turn back around and remember, oh yeah, I really actually need you. Yeah, prodigal son, that's exactly right. We are all the prodigal son. So this week, we're going to pray to draw closer to God. We're also going to pray in grateful thanksgiving for the fact that God loves us so much. Every single one of us deeply he's personal it's amazing and then we're going to pray that in drawing closer to him that we get to be formed more like him see that's the that's the cultural benefit to all of this is that when we draw closer to him and we get in deeper saving faith in him we want to act more like him and we actually change it, it, our, our lives change in an external manner because we want to draw closer to god which means we're kinder we love people that are really difficult to love really difficult. Sometimes we love people that are impossible to love because we're drawing closer to him. And then we get to really love our neighbors and we get to change the world. You don't need a big government to change the world. You need a bunch of Christians who love their neighbors to change the world. And it's happening. I'm watching this happen. I I watched a group, uh, a Christian group this week raise $20 million to move Afghan refugees in three days. $20 million. Now the State Department has basically blocked all their attempts to try to rescue these people. But there are giving, kind, loving people in this world that can make a huge impact, right? By just going out and loving our neighbors. So this is the kind of thing that will actually change the world. Our drawing closeness to God and understanding his love deep in us and then pushing that back out to the world. Was it uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 14 says, let everything you do, let, therefore let everything that you do be done in love. 
right? Paul's giving us this command. That's how we carry this into the world. Let's pray. Um, Almighty and gracious God, thank you so much for your word. And thank you for this, this evening and this ability to grow together. And Lord, I just ask that as we enter this week, as we're going about our day-to-day lives, that we will constantly be reminded of how much you love us, each and every one of us, down to the hairs on our head, that you know everything about us, and that your love for us is so pure and so genuine and so kind. And Lord, I just pray that we, we all internalize that and it causes us to draw closer to you, that we make that our primary goal in life above all else. And by doing so, we get to love our neighbors better and we get to love our enemies. We can be more forgiving people, kinder, more generous, and we can really be world-changing people. Lord, let us be a light to everyone that we meet. That as they they leave our time, that something sticks in them and says those people were different people. That they will know that we are your followers by the manner in which we love one another. So Lord, impress us upon us, care for us, carry us in our sufferings and our burdens, and help us uh, just heal this broken world. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.